Being a good parent isn't just about having a set of skills or knowing the right thing to do all the time. Ask any good parent you know. They can tell you their pro tips, but most are happy to admit that a lot of parenting feels like winging it. Who we are and how we continue to grow matters because our kids pick up most of what they learn from us by watching how we do things, not by listening to our instructions. So join me on this journey of remodeling our mindsets so that our actions speak to those watching. I'm Dr. Dina Shelton, and this is Remodel Parenting. Welcome back to Remodel Parenting as we continue our series and lessons from classic research. Today, I'm going to be talking about Harry Harlow's surrogate mother experiment. And as I've done in many of these episodes, I am giving the disclaimer that many of these research studies are classic, meaning they're old and they used um, standards in ethics or a lack of standards in ethics that we use today. And many of these would not be redone in the same way now, but we still have much that we can learn from the outcomes. So discussing findings is not condoning or expressing support for tactics used that we would not use today. Harry Harlow completed a, this surrogate mother's experiment as one in a series of experiments that we've used through the years to understand a, attachment and attachment needs in people. Now, before I get into the research, I want to talk a little bit about what attachment is so that we un, we, we're all on the same page with that. And I've discussed this in other episodes as well, but attachment we are defining as the secure base of connection to a primary caregiver in young childhood. And it's an innate need that develops as a result of consistent, stable care from an adult who is responsive to the child's needs and is is responsive in a way that's sensitive and regulated in those responses. Now, attachment we know starts in building in young childhood, infancy even, But we also know that attachment and attachment needs continue into adulthood and that attachment responses can change based on experiences. And so attachment patterns develop in early life as a result of the caregiver-child interactions. And kids can develop attachments that are secure towards those adults and that gives them a platform for exploring the world in a more secure way. They also can develop other types of attachment responses, including Um, responses that we may call avoidant or anxious or disorganized. When the caregiver is responsive and offers responsive behaviors that are direct, consistent, and safe, including in discipline. So this is not only providing um, positive feedback or positive engagements with children, but even when disciplining or correcting children, being present, consistent, safe, and direct, that produces a secure attachment. So it takes calm but firm connection even in when the child is dysregulating, but it also is providing an emotionally regulated response to the child. Now, other types of responses to child needs, because these are all responses in relationship to needs. Now, children's needs are very different from adults, and so what that child might need um, may seem to be a little bit um, off or need to be corrected if they think they need exactly what they want in that moment and they dysregulate, they still need the connection and attention to help guide them back into a regulated state. If the caregiver's response behaviors are distant or rejecting in nature, they tend to produce an avoidant attachment. And you can imagine why that would be, because if the caregiver is pushing away from or moving away from the child or rejecting the needs of that child, they may be ignoring the needs or requests or signals for connection, so not even picking up on them. So the child learns innately that 
if you send signals for need, no one will respond. Or it can be constantly failing to meet a need, like comfort. When a child is upset or dysregulated, instead of comforting the child, telling them to get over it, suck it up, that kind of thing, on a consistent basis and in every situation, is one that over time could produce um, a child who grows into having an avoidant attachment style. So avoiding reaching out for needs, avoiding asking for help, or putting their vulnerability out there. Response behaviors from caregivers that are angry or confusing can produce an anxious attachment. So this might be when a caregiver, the mother or father, anybody who's the primary caregiver is giving stress responses or is in significant stress while meeting the needs of the child. So this would be um, meeting needs in caring ways sometimes, but then other times responding to needs with stress or anger or just having frustration and angst while meeting the needs of the children. And then that produces angst and anxiety in the child, and that connects to attachment and need those need-based relationships. And the fourth is when the response behaviors from the caregivers are unpredictable or scary to the child, and that produces disorganized attachment. Now, that can happen for a lot of reasons. For example, if the parents are internalizing child's needs as a failure, chastising or mocking children's needs when they're exposed. And then sometimes this type of unpredictable or scary behaviors may come out as a result of unresolved trauma in the caregiver or parent. And so for kids, it becomes very confusing because sometimes I may have a need and people will meet it gladly. And then other times it may not. And it's highly unpredictable. Poor attachment interactions can be on purpose, but a lot of times they're actually unintentional. So for example, the loss of a spouse or a serious medical diagnosis can cause the inability for an adult parent or a caregiver to respond to and may increase missing signals. That's part of a regular experience of either one of those happenings. Um, constant overwork or burnout can produce stress responses, even without awareness on behalf of the caregiver. And then, as I said earlier, unresolved trauma can cause a lot of unpredictability and internal issues that come out, again, without necessarily meaning for it to, but then it becomes a part of that attachment process. And then, of course, behavioral choices like substance abuse or other addictions can completely alter how adults connect to their children. So... With knowing all of this and some of the work that was done, Harry Harlow's work in the 1960s was instrumental in helping people understand the basic need of attachment and connection in humans, especially in the parent-child relationship. Harry Harlow was interested in studying love and the parent-child connections, but that was not a common thing to be studied. This was in a historical time period when behaviorism was at its peak. And so psychologists were very focused on people's behaviors being learned in their social environment, but not by social interactions or care, but more from feedback and um, either rewards or punishments that would increase or decrease the behavior from happening again. Now, Harlow was interested in love in a time when many psychologists didn't really believe that affection and emotional connection with children was necessary. In fact, some of them believe that mental disorders came from too much love and affection in childhood, and some of them would go as far as to say that affection causes those, and so a mother's affection or connection to her kids really needed to be tempered because if you gave too much, you were setting your kids up for failure. Um, 
That is very different from how we look at things now. It's very different from how we approach things. And Harry Harlow didn't buy it. And so he really wanted to look into it and see if he could prove or work with research to see if he could produce the same type of behaviors in animals, and in this case, monkeys, to show the need for care, comfort, and concern between a, an infant and its mother. And so he did a series of, instru- of experiments with young rhesus monkeys, and some of his experiences were actually pretty shocking and cruel. To read about a lot of them can be difficult, especially when we protect um, people and animals in research now in ways that it just wasn't regulated then. But during these, they really uncovered some significant information about emotional and affection needs. The most famous experiment that he conducted was removing infant rhesus monkeys from their mothers a few hours after birth and raised them with surrogate mothers. Now, these surrogate mothers were inanimate objects. Each monkey was given two constructed mothers that sat side by side. And they were constructed in similar size to adult rhesus monkeys with a head and a lap, a place to sit. Um, One of the fake mothers was a terry cloth wrapped um, place that the little baby monkey could sit. And the, but it did not produce any food. The, the monkey couldn't get any sustenance from that surrogate mother. The other one, though, was a wire frame. So no terry cloth, nothing soft. It was just a wire frame, but had a bottle attached to it. And that was where the monkey could get its food. The idea behind this was that many psychologists said babies actually only need their mothers for their basic needs, like food and nourishment and relief from pain. They don't actually need them for any type of emotional connection. Um, What they observed with these rhesus monkeys who had these two moms side by side is that they were drawn immediately to the one that was terry cloth. And over time, they realized that the infant monkeys spent 17 to 18 hours a day with the cloth mother and only moved to the wire mother to eat, spending less than an hour a day total on average in the lap of the wire mother with the food. Harlow had predicted that contact comfort or that ability to sit on the soft mother would be an important variable. But he said, and this was a quote from him, that they were unprepared to find that it completely overwhelmed and overshadowed other variables, including those of nursing. The monkeys were so connected to the softer, more comforting mother figure that they spent less time feeding than what was expected in general of rhesus monkeys at that age. They performed other studies with these baby monkeys in a wide variety of settings. They designed something that was scary to the monkeys and introduced it into that home, the little home space that they were in, and watched the monkeys move and cling to the terry cloth mother. Not the mother that was feeding it, but the terry cloth soft version that provided the comfort. One of the things that they did is that they took these baby monkeys who remember, were raised in this environment from hours after birth. They took the monkeys out of their little, their smaller cages with the two moms that they were raised in, and they put them in a new environment that was a little bit overwhelming. It was bigger, broader, had different items in it, and they observed their responses. The baby monkeys responded just like they thought that it would. They cowered, they were scared in the room, And they were not really interested in exploring this new space. They were just afraid. They were very small monkeys. So they wanted to see what would happen if they placed the surrogate mothers in the room with them. 
So first they placed the wire mother in the room. Now remember that these monkeys were nursed by that wire mother their whole lives. So that wire mother had provided their basic needs. And the monkeys in the big room responded the same way that they responded with no mother present. They cowered. They stayed in basically in one place. They were less likely to explore or do anything. And they did not interact with the wire mother at all. However, they then replaced the wire mother with the cloth mother. And when they did that, the monkeys immediately moved towards the cloth mother and clung to her for comfort. And Harlow explained this, that those little monkeys were building up security and comfort from the co-regulation. They were, they were seeking and getting, filling up their little tanks in comfort and in security and in safety and rest and regulating their bodies from that cloth mother. What was very, very interesting is that after they had regulated holding on to the cloth mother, they built up enough security to start exploring the room and investigating. So they would leave the cloth mother, look around and touch things, and then they would come back and kind of recharge on her. And then they would move out and explore, and then they would come back to the cloth mother. So in all of this, what do we learn? Quite a lot, right? We know that children need a soft place for regulation in their early years. Their dysregulation has to be co-regulated before they can learn to regulate themselves. And our approach to that has lasting effects. So if we provide our children with a soft place to co-regulate, we don't expect them to be able to regulate themselves in every situation, especially new situations, And we don't shame them or cause them to feel like something's wrong with them for needing that connection to their caregivers as a charge base. And we encourage them to move out into the world. We encourage them to explore things, but provide that charging station for them. Then they will grow into healthy, uh, adaptable children and young adults. The need for more regulation and the need for different types of regulation is not automatically a sign of a less healthy individual or someone who's going to have issues long term. In fact, it's the ones that don't get that that can tend to become anxious, overwhelmed, avoidant, or struggle with relationships. Now, um, comfort and care is not something that softens people long term. It's actually the base camp for strengthening them for exploration and courage in other areas of life. Our profession, the psychological profession and the adjacent professions like counseling and and others widely endorse that adults need the same regular care and comfort from others as a baseline for continued health and wellness through life. This is not just a kid thing. We all need a home base and a safe place. We can create that in our homes and with our family members in real time, but we do have to have boundaries and protect that. We have to both seek and provide this type of comfort and balance teaching our kids to self-regulate and allow ourselves to be co-regulated at times. So we may have a tendency to push our kids and say, you're fine, you don't need anything, handle it. And sometimes that's okay. In places, sometimes kids do need a little bit of a push. So I'm not saying that we never do that. When they've been co-regulated, when they have learned that, sometimes they need that gentle push to say, you can do this on your own. You're brave. I believe you. And I'm here right after to recharge when you're done, right? 
But a lot of times we assume that when a child has been co-regulated enough in some areas, that new scary things shouldn't require co-regulation. Again, not true at all. In fact, I think a lot of people end up with longer term issues internally and end up going to more counseling or needing more counseling because the whole process of counseling and working with someone is helping them many times learn to regulate and helping co-regulate them in really stressful or difficult situations. And so that can be redone, relearned, and redesigned if it wasn't done properly the first time. Now, as I close out this topic in this particular study, one thing that I can't help but be aware of is that this one can be a tough one because if in listening to the attachment descriptions, you identified and said, oh my goodness, I think I might have one of those non-secure types of attachment. I think I may attach that way. And so what is happening with my children or what might happen with my kids in the future? Please don't um, overstress about this. Realizing that we may need to look into this more is something that many of us deal with at some point in our lives. And it's the whole thing is a process. Our whole lives are a process of learning how to and then actively practicing attachment. You can have the most connected attached kids who end up growing up, getting into unhealthy relationships, and it can completely dysregulate healthy attachment in adult relationships. And then it has to be maintained, built back up, maintained and continued from that point. So attachment is an active process. It's not static. That means it doesn't stay the same. We don't reach a level and just halt. It's consistently something that we pay attention to, tune into our own needs and those of others, that we ask for what we need, that we give and meet other people's needs, and that we make this a normal thing in our homes. We make this a normal thing with our kids so that it's not something that people are avoiding in an effort to not be mocked or chastised or seen as you know, incapable of doing things. And if we have past or histories that have made it complicated for us, then we can seek the help that we need. Maybe we talk about it to a mentor, a faith leader, a counselor, and work on it in um, counseling sessions. But whatever it is, we actively work to create a better place for us and our families. Thank you so much for listening to Remodel Parenting. If you know someone who could benefit from this episode, I hope you'll share it with them. And if you love what we're doing, like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have topics you'd like to hear about, email us at info at theremodelproject.com. 